Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now your host, Les Jensen. So, uh, you know, I was doing some rudimentary math before the show was starting, and I always forget to divide by seven. But uh, the question came up, when when did we forget? When did when did we forget how to fulfill the promises that the saints and the saviors have told us we're capable of? Right? I mean, uh, I pretty much stay in the Christian pond because that's what I was raised with, but. Uh, so Jesus says, come on, come on, y'all are going to be doing everything. You all, that'd be you, you, yes, you will be doing everything I have done and more. So when is that going to happen unless we look at that, the idea of that happening straight on? You know, if if you're like two and a half, uh, okay, maybe three, and uh, I ask you if you can do calculus, you'll tell me you can't. Well, or you'll say, what the hell is calculus? What's your problem, mister? Get out of here. Mom, this guy's bugging me. No, okay, all right. But if we don't talk about square on, if we don't talk about straight up that we have all the potentials that have been promised us somewhere within our persona, when the hell, how long would it take for us to bring it about if we're not talking about it, if we don't change our beliefs about it? I mean, you're wired for this grandeur. It's your divine inheritance. It's a fundamental aspect of who you are. Now I'm not I'm not saying this to to beat you up, but in the sense of when when in your internal dialogue are you gonna stretch and expand who you think you are? I mean you gotta create a mental space. It's done unto you as you believe. So it seems like our mental cognitive narratives that we're running, our belief systems, are probably pretty fundamental to why we've disconnected. But when did we forget? Perhaps it was many lifetimes ago. When did we forget how to do all this stuff? We, because we went into the darkness, we went into separation, we went into this, this uh, smaller sense of self, and none of those narratives are really conducive for us uh, showing up for ourselves, showing up with, with what we've been promised. Welcome to the show tonight. I'm, I'm stoked for tonight's episode. The topic tonight is yoga of sound, and our guest is Michael Grosso. We're going to bring him on in just a minute. But uh, what I like about tonight's episode is looking at non-linear experiences, looking at a medium that unusual things can happen. I think perhaps sometimes we get stuck or we or we get complacent because our attention and thus our intention is in our narrative, in that linear thinking of the mind, the linear thinking of the ego. I think the 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 realm of miracles is probably a nonlinear space, which is not conducive to a 
a linear narrative that the ego or the mind might be fond of. It's not like the universe is going to change. It's not like uh, the laws of physics have to ripen or come into fruition. If if Jesus uh, showed up in a uh, next to you, the universe wouldn't change, and yet miracles would be performed. So it's really ourselves. It's really ourselves that's going to dictate and decide whether or not we come around to what we've been promised by the saints and the saviors. Well, let's get to it. Uh, again, the topic tonight is yoga of sound, and our guest is Michael Grosso. Forgive me with this, the speed in which I say the, uh, the name here, but we're talking about his latest book, Yoga of Sound, The Life and Teachings of Celestial Songman, Swami Nada Brahmanada. I hope I said that right. In this book, Michael shows readers how to use sound to create a life of complete health and happiness. Not long after obtaining his Ph.D. in philosophy from Columbia in 1971, Michael had an extraordinary experience in Greenwich Village, New York, that led him to realize he needed to balance his overly intellectual life with, with music. He met Swami, a former court musician for the king of Mysore, famous throughout India, for being a master of tan music and sound yoga, as well as for its supernatural control of his body. There's a supernatural control of his body. Michael began studying with Swami and found his life profoundly changed. Michael has taught at City University of New York, Kennedy University in California, and City University of New Jersey. Join me in welcoming Michael to the show. Michael, it's so nice to have you on the show. Well, thank you, and I'm delighted uh, to be invited and to uh, have a discussion with you. And if I might say, uh, I have to say something about your opening question, if I may, about the sure. loss how we lost this uh, sense of what we're capable of. I'm not sure if we've ever had it, uh, but our time and our age at, at, at this period of modern history, uh, of science and technology, uh, we've been talked out of it. Uh, we can be very specific about this and say, for example, the Protestant Reformation announced the fact that the miracles that occurred in the New Testament, that was it. No more miracles, which is, of course, uh, a crazy and nonsensical thing to say. But less, rather more critical in terms of squelching our creative and transcendental potential is the science as it has evolved, and I'm a complete uh, admirer of all the achievements of science, but science has along the way lapsed into the rather narrow conception that the only reality is the reality that we can sense and see. In other words, material reality. Well, the reason for that is that most of the science that we have uh, involves the control and the exploration of material nature. And for some reason, many scientists uh, and followers of science and cultures that devote themselves to science have gotten into the habit of imagining that materialism, uh, the, the doctrine that the only reality is material reality, uh, is the truth. And if that is the truth, then the mind, the spirit, the soul, the whole dimension of our miraculous and supernormal and paranormal potentials goes down the drain. And uh, now there are many scientists who don't believe that, uh, but uh, that's I, the answer that I would give. We've been taught 
uh, to doubt these things. It just doesn't come up. Uh, if you try to engage someone uh, and just go, start talking about miracles, uh, for the most part, uh, especially if they're educated, they recoil and, uh, you know, uh, raise their noses. <laughs> Whereas my impression is that, that my, my impression uh, uh, is that ordinary folks, everyday people who are not uh, trained into this point of view, are instinctively and quite naturally open to extraordinary stories. It's just more fun uh, to be open to all kinds of unusual possibilities of what the, the way the world is compounded and the way, what human beings are, 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 are capable of. So uh, I'm trying to, uh, I've spent a lot of time first studying the phenomena that are supposed to be impossible so that I can handle myself in discussions and encounters with those who are, uh, so to speak, intellectually locked down and right. so their own views. Right. Well, you know, one thing I've learned over the years is time can be a slippery fish. So I'm going to actually shift gears a little bit and talk about one of your other books. And that's the the book talking about St. Joseph of uh, Cupertino. Can mm-hmm. you share with us uh, what that book is about and and the miracle behind the topic of that book? Absolutely. I'd be happy to. My approach has been not to apologetically look at this material, but to look for the most provocative, the most powerful, even the most mentally shocking and counterintuitive phenomena, okay? But on one condition. Is there evidence for it? Because I'm not anti-science. I am consistently open to science, and science means data, evidence, eyewitness testimony. So uh, in the case of... uh, I had read something a little bit about uh, levitation, and then I looked further, you know, levitation, the ability to defy gravity and rise into the air, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, well, that stuff is impossible, and uh, I decided to look into it. And I discovered that there was one, I mean, there are many cases on record. I'm not going to review the whole history of levitation, but you asked about my book. I discovered that there was one 17th century Catholic saint who was famous for his levitations. And he undoubtedly is the one, is a person uh, for whom there is a huge amount of evidence uh, that he actually did uh, levitate. So I have to know, read Italian fairly well. I got all the the books in Italian, the original text explaining his phenomena. And I, uh, you know, tackled the study of levitation in the case of the 17th century uh, mystic, uh, Joseph of Cupertino. And what I found was that, first of all, there are about 150 eyewitness sworn testimonies on record in the Vatican archives describing St. Joseph's levitations, various forms of flight. But actually, that doesn't come close to a proper account. Those are only the more educated people, like uh, even a pope, uh, doctors, uh, artists, craftsmen. But the fact of the matter is, for 35 years, with the exception of two years, for 35 years of uh, his career as a priest, and a mystic, uh, he was levitating constantly in front of people, hundreds of people, while saying mass, participating in some religious holiday. He would get carried away, ecstatically carried away, and he would levitate. And he did it to such an extent that it would cause disturbances, riots, near riots, because people would come from all over, all over Europe to observe him. 
because they knew about this man, and they also knew that he was intensely holy and intensely psychic, spiritually had all kinds of telepathic abilities. And uh, so I uh, devoted myself to making the case for uh, St. Joseph's phenomena and wrote a book. And then I, with a partner, translated uh, the best uh, biography of the man and made that available. And uh, it's, although I did shorten it because there's a lot of stuff in the biography that uh, sort of wandered away from the main topic. And uh, I feel that it's very, very important to, um, to document these powerful and provocative phenomena because they tell something about human potential. And it's just downright foolish to back off from this stuff just because of a habitual uh, identification and uh, misunderstanding about the limitations of reality. Uh, that is to say, the notion of materialism. So uh, right. that is, is the substance of uh, of the book uh, uh, that I wrote. And I, I defy anyone <laughs> to uh, uh, try to do away. There was one extraordinarily uh, foolish uh, review by one person, I won't mention his name, who tried to explain Joseph's levitations as a result of that he was a secret gymnast and that he faked the whole thing and he was able to fool people, all kinds of very, very smart, critical-minded people, for 35 years into believing that he was actually levitating when, in fact, he was just a fantastic gymnast, which is so totally stupid because the man was never, hardly ate, hardly slept, and could barely, you know, he was not healthy. Uh, right. I mean, he was functional, but he was anything but a gymnast. <laughs> well, now, I'm, I'm, thank you for sharing that story, because I think the context of that relates to um, your latest book, The Yoga of Sound. So let's let's talk about that, the, the life and teachings of Celestial Songman, Swami Nada Brahmananda. Brahmananda. See, I know it's a funny name. By the way, Anada means vibration. Oh, nice. Uh, and, and, yeah, and uh, and then his name, Brahmananda. Brahma, of course, is the name, comes from a Sanskrit word which means God, also expansive. And uh, Ananda means bliss. So how about walking around with a name <laughs> like that? Uh, vibration, <laughs> God bliss. Like, imagine, you know, you're at a party and you say, I'd like to introduce you to my friend, uh, Vibration, God bliss. Really? Wow. Happy to meet you, sir. Right. <laughs> anyway, I just thought it would be fun to translate his, uh, his name. So, yes, I, I heard about this man being in town in New York City in 19, I believe it was 1976, from a friend of mine. He was a psychotherapist. And I had only recently gotten my Ph.D. in philosophy and had this, uh, uh, I was a big fan of Socrates, and still am, of course. And when Socrates was about to be executed, in the last days he was uh, in prison, he reports to his friends that he kept having a dream, a a dream that would repeat itself. And the dream, the message of the dream was Socrates make music and ergadzu, which means work on it. And he didn't understand. He thought philosophy was the greatest form of music. But, I, but, he, but he still had this continuous dream. So I concluded from this fascinating story about Socrates that there maybe really is something wrong and missing uh, in one's education, if all it is is concepts and ideas and words, and that music perhaps is what we need to balance ourselves and to draw upon our latent uh, powers and uh, uh, psychological and spiritual abilities, not just having a good mind, which is essential, 
uh, or a critical mind, which is essential, particularly so in our current world. But uh, we need to be in tune with our emotions, our feelings, our imagination. And so uh, I was moved to hang out and move. Uh, I was moved to, to take lessons from Swami Nana Brahmananda. And uh, so that's how I, I recorded all the lessons I took with him. And he kind of knew that I was there to learn about him. And he told me stories about his life. And the mu- I mean, he was a fantastic music teacher. I wasn't a very good student, but it didn't matter very much to me. Uh, I was ecstatic about learning from him all the things I learned. Uh, his life and his practices and his own uh, skills as a musician. So uh, this is the, that's a quick uh, take uh, on, on how I got to meet Nara Brahmananda. And I managed to uh, uh, take lessons from him in New York City for about uh, a year and a half. And uh, on and off, not necessarily every week. And forgot all about the lessons that I, 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 I recorded, and then when I went home, I would type them out. And then I forgot it until recently, fairly recently. I started reading it, and I decided, hey, I'm going to try and publish this, and I did. And, and so here we are, <laughs> and I'm very glad that I did. So when we look at uh, the yoga of sound, what was uh, Swami's... Um uh, I perhaps I'd say modality with sound. I mean, how how was um, what kind of effect did he have with sound? Well, you know, he was, as far as I know, one of the last living or known masters of so-called vibration yoga. And uh, one of the things that he was able to do, by the way, he was a man of extraordinary health. He lived ninety-seven years old and apparently never got sick a day in his life. But um, he, uh, his strange music ability, and he was tested for this by various people, uh, which I document in my book, uh, he was able to create vibrations in his own body. And this may have something to do with the secret of his prolonged health. So that he told me, and I've read, other individuals before me who recorded this, scientists who studied him and used all kinds of devices to make sure that he was telling the truth. But, for example, this is the way I would put it. His whole body was, he turned it into a musical instrument. When he would, for example, uh, sing, uh, he would he would be able to... Uh, control his voice in such a way that he could send it the vibrations that he was producing out of his mouth to any part of his body and then invite people with microphones to get down and sort of feel his, look at his toe or the top of his head uh, or the side of his left ear. uh, And they would hear the vibrations, you see. Uh, And uh, so that the vibrations apparently... Uh, were the secret of his of his health now, and he was able to progress to pro- project them out of himself. So he was also a healer, and he told me wonderful stories of, especially like to work with children who were nervous and frightened children, and uh, the parents would bring the child to him, and and he would immediately just get those little guys. Uh, relaxed and vibrating with him. And I had the same experience when I took lessons with him. He was a a fantastic teacher. He didn't let me get away with anything. I had to control. The first thing he said to me when I met him was, mind control is life. That's the secret of his extraordinary abilities, Uh, that he knew how to concentrate uh, and not just concentrate, but concentrate in an orderly way, because to make music, you have to count, because the, the pulse and the rhythms are, in a sense, 
mathematical uh, and have to be precise. So part of the learning, part of learning how to tune in to the vibrational creative power of your own mind and body uh, entailed learning how to make music. So it's a beautiful way. Now, the other point I should immediately make if I want to tell the story of Nada Brahmananda, he uh, and other, by the way, Indian teachers and philosophers have this notion that we are in the age of Kali. And that means, Kali, it means the age of conflict. Uh, According to the various uh, Hindu scholars that I have read, we are not only in this declining age uh, of Kali or constant conflicts all over the place, just open your eyes and you can see it. Right. But um, but we... um, but yeah, all right. So that that that's it. And, and uh, we we are in a time when we need uh, m- music. You see, is the only way, according to Nada Brahmananda, in this highly decadent, broken epoch of human history, that the music is a way that we can break through the uh, conflicts, the negativity. Uh, all of the psychic uh, problems that so many of us have nowadays, because music is so powerful. And if we know how to do it, of course, if we learn how to do it properly, uh, music is uh, the, the, the more hopeful way of um, resolving our conflicts and evolving our spiritual uh, uh, potentials. And uh, that is uh, perhaps some people might think is a, an overly optimistic idea, but I think that he has a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of truth to that idea. Uh, we're not going to get improved as human beings just by being hectored and, 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 t- and being told that we're, you know, wretched, miserable uh, human beings. We need some practice uh, and this is a major thing that I learned from Nara Brahmananda. The need for, uh, the Hindu word is sadhana. We all need some kind of practice, some kind of method for awakening the latent spiritual energies in us. And when he talks about music, it's not just music in the ordinary sense of the word, but all the arts have musical potential because all the arts involve vibrations. Colors, for example, have frequencies. So art can be thought of as another path toward awakening these powers. Singing, music, uh, anything that you're doing, if you do it with heart and with intensity and with focus, you can turn on those uh, latent uh, healing uh, and psychically evolved uh, potentials in us. So I like to stress the fact that uh, what I learned from Nada was not just about music, and certainly not just about the esoteric music of India, but all music and all forms of art, and indeed almost any practice. Uh, I think if you're a doctor, uh, if you're a teacher, a kindergarten teacher, and you have children that you have to relate to, no matter what you're doing in life, you have the option and the opportunity to um, learn how to awaken within yourself and transmit to others uh, the creative uh, energies that are latent in us and that, according to Indian philosophy, pervade the whole universe. Right. Anyway, well, uh, you know, I mean, to talk about... Um, excuse me, the acoustic, you know, the the sonic arena, so to speak, as a a modality or a a spectrum of effect. And then you share how a Swami could, could, uh, with his consciousness and his intent, spatially find a spot on his body and then bring the, the, the vibrational effect of music to well sound to that um it it seems like sound is uh 
Sound is a, a, a vehicle of intent, perhaps. Whereas when you sit down to craft music and you have a intention for that music, the 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 sound itself through the intention of our intent and consciousness becomes a tool or a vehicle of our intent to come into fruition if that makes sense absolutely the intention is is is, is crucial and uh, i like to add since i am a student of parapsychology that uh, parapsychologists uh, and physicists who have studied psychokinesis emphasize that the way you get a psychokinetic effect is number one you don't try too hard the critical thing is having concentrating on the effect you're aiming for not how you're going to do it um, and uh, i think that's a very useful tool uh and if you're so part of the, the creative potential that we need to work on is our imagination and, and images. So if we have a clear image, according to Nara Brahmananda, and he stresses practicing this, if you have a clear image of your goal, uh, the important thing is, so to speak, to the way he might put it, leave it up to God. Just hold the image in your mind and don't wrestle with exactly how you're going to go about doing You'll discover right. that along the way. You'll, you'll figure that out. The main thing is, as you said a moment ago, intentionality. And uh, that is the thing that, uh, that you can practice, even in the, in the smallest uh, features of everyday life. We can be sloppy uh, or we can be uh, focused, even in small things. Uh, and I, I find that myself. I've been... <laughs> I'm trying to teach myself how to enjoy every moment of life, uh, even the uh, boring and irritating ones, if I have <laughs> the right uh, frame of mind. And uh, so that that's that's sort of part of the uh, the story of, of how to overcome the age of Kali. Well, the, it, I mean to to shift our sense of self, so to speak. So we're listening to the show and, and we're talking about sound and we're talking about St. Jo Joseph. Um, if we don't have an intent anywhere in our psyche, anywhere in our dialogue, to have that kind of interaction with potential, so to speak, if it's not even in our intent, we've pretty much shelved the idea of moving towards our potential i mean it starts with an intent so like you're saying uh, swami says to take that intent as an important uh, step in in using sound as uh, transforming or transmuting our, our physical experience so to speak uh, for us in our in our western life to to have to start using intent, even though we haven't seen the outcome yet, if that makes sense, to to uh, make that a first step for us, so to speak, to move into a more intentional realm of manifestation. Well, yes, you know, and you the the intent uh, the absence of intent could be described in terms of another variable that we often hear about, both in psychology and in religion, and that is the role of confidence or faith. Uh, I don't like the word faith too much because it has associations with a certain kind of religiosity that is, seems to me a bit simplistic. Uh, but the, the intentionality of, uh, of, of uh, you have to have the confidence and the belief that something is possible uh, and uh, and that can enable you to uh, concentrate on the outcome but if you don't have that confidence and you may not have it you see it's uh, unless unless you've had an experience that's why it's important to well to open yourself up to all kinds of experiences 
because they can stimulate and awaken things in you that you never knew uh, that you had or possessed. And uh, so, yes, the, the, the intentionality and the confidence and the ability to hold your attention on something, uh, uh, whether it be making music or uh, accomplishing whatever the feats or efforts that you're involved in in the course of your of your life, uh, these uh, inner psychological variables are absolutely crucial. And uh, so it takes and it takes practice. That's the point. Uh, that uh, not a Brahmananda. Uh, he used to tell me. I once told him the story. Uh, told him that I, I couldn't afford to buy the tabla. I, I was a young teacher at that time. I didn't have money to buy a tabla. And he looked at me and he laughed. He says, "You don't need a drum." Uh, he says, and then he started tapping on my head. He says, "You can sit down and 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 tap and make music on your desk or on a chair." Uh, and uh, he made a joke out of it, uh, uh, sort of knocking on my head a little bit. So uh, you don't need... And oddly enough, I want to share this, uh, this story, that I had a dream before I, I, I met Nada Brahmananda of a music teacher, a funny little guy, and Nada Brahmananda was sort of small and very funny, that um, he dreamt of, of this person who wanted to become my music teacher. But he said this. He says, there are no instruments. I didn't know what that meant. But when I met Nada Brahmananda, I discovered that, it, that I was dreaming about him because he would say, you don't need instruments. You can make anything an instrument out of your art. You can make anything into an instrument of art if you have the right intention, the right frame of mind, the right patience, and the right persistence. So clearly, you know, somehow <laughs> he ends up, he was in my dreams before I, I met him. Uh, and uh, that made it even more interesting, uh, my experience with the man. Well, you know, it, it's like he said, you don't need a drum. Um, there's the idea of, I was, <clears throat> excuse me, I was talking to uh, uh Chinese uh, medicine doctor, an acupuncturist, and I asked him, I said, uh, well, are you a master? And he said, well, well, no, no, I'm not a master. I said, well, what's the difference between you and a master? And he said, well, a master will only use one needle. And uh, when you talk about the notion of the drum, the 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 idea of a of a permission slip. In other words, it, if I first become a student of acupuncture, I need quote air quote I need all these needles, and then as I as I learn and get intuitive and get experience. I don't need all those needles. It's like I'm, right. I'm giving my pers- myself permission for my intent to be fulfilled in a single action. And, well, and yes. So, and, go ahead. No, I was going to say, uh, in response to that, uh, what you're saying is that the more you immerse yourself in a uh, in a practice, you learn how to improvise. You learn how to invent, and I keep discovering that uh, I've been. I'm a painter, and the more I paint, uh, the more I discover that uh, I can do all kinds of things that I didn't think I could do before. The more I, the more skill I acquired, and the more times I stuck my neck out and tried something silly, and it turned out to be not so bad, so to speak. I discovered that hey. Don't hold back. Try this. Try that. Uh, and uh, so there, and that is also related to the confidence that we were talking about. You have to have openness and confidence and willingness to improvise. So that's what it seems to me we've just exchanged notes on the importance of improvisation. But you can't do that unless, you know, you're, you're at it for a while. I mean, jazz musicians are 
master improvises, but it doesn't come out of nowhere. Uh, they know there's they they know the various uh, uh, progressions and uh, scales and whatnot. They've got them memorized, and at a moment's notice, they can start playing around and inventing things. So I think that lesson applies to the art of living, in my opinion, at any rate. Sure. So if, I mean, um, in the book Yoga of Sound, do you have particular um, stories that are included in this book that that are your favorite or you're fond of? Well, there's one thing uh, that I like, and uh, this thing uh, that Nara Brahmananda called uh, Nara Kumbhaka. All right, imagine this. You, this is a man that slept only two hours a night. And, and by the way, never had, he never dreamed, okay, that he was in uh, uh, doctor of medical studies, and he, he never dreamed. But uh, he, um, he did have a night, a, a, a morning. Uh, he would wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. And the first thing he would do is a, um, a thing that he called nada kumbhaka. The, the nada we know means vibration. And the kumbhaka is uh, breath. And this is what he would do. He would take, obviously he would prepare for this moment, but he would take a single breath and then stare at a murta, they were called. It's sort of an image of Shiva he had across the room that he would fix his attention and not blink and stare at that and take hold of the tabla on one breath. The trick was to do it kumbhaka, the holding of the breath, for 35 minutes, he would do this every morning on one breath. By the way, that's a world record in terms of holding the breath. He did it in, uh, under scientific uh, circumstances in an airtight chamber in India several times. So this is for real. I mean, he did this. And I watched him do it once, although he told me he only lasted 27 minutes because he had a little itch in his throat, and that prevented him. <laughs> Uh, but he did this in front of a whole bunch of people. But this is outdoors, and I know that this man would not lie. Uh, I, I would stake my life on it. I mean, I couldn't prove because he's out in the air. He could have taken a sneak to breath. But that's a story. Now, imagine that as your, <laughs> the way you begin your day uh, at 3 o'clock in the morning. And uh, he would do this, not a kumbaka, and, uh, for 35 minutes. Uh, his eyes, the trick was not to blink once and uh, to keep his eyes on the, on the image of Shiva. Totally, in other words, it's a wonderful image of total concentration in which he was able to transcend uh, his ordinary physical limitations and hold his breath for 35 minutes. There's supposed to be a record. Uh, the record uh, on uh, uh, I've forgotten where I've read this, but the alleged record for holding one's breath is 23 minutes. So uh, unless uh, Nanda Brahmananda was a faker, and I don't believe that for a split second, uh, he was the world's master of breath control. But uh, then again, you see, the breath control by itself is nothing. It's the important feature of mind control was that you can do, you can control your mind uh, in all facets of life, in, in diet, uh, in with your emotions, as well as your art forms or your whatever skills you have that you have uh, in life, uh, you uh, apply that extraordinary power that you have acquired through practice and meditation. And, um, so yeah, that's one story that that I uh, that I particularly like. Uh, there are others uh, I, I, I could tell. Uh, if you uh, the, the, the 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 Shiva icon that I just mentioned, this is a story he told me. He was giving an outdoor concert concert one day, and at the end of the concert, a little old man came up to him and handed him uh, this 
icon, which became uh, Shiva, which became a, an, a crucial part of his life. And he gave it to him as, they didn't say anything, he just handed it to him as a gift. And uh, Nada accepted it, looked at it, and looked up, and the man was gone. He, was, he had disappeared. And he asked everyone around him, did you see an old man with a, something in his hand that he gave me just now? And nobody saw any, uh, any man but himself. Now, again, that sounds totally fantastic and impossible. I understand that. I'm not naive. But, again, I find it difficult to believe that Nada would make up a story like that. But right. I, don't, I, can't, I can't prove it. I can only give you my impression of the man and my confidence in him and his authenticity. But uh, those are a couple of interesting stories, and well, there are a lot more. Uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the show's on its 13th year, and we're, we're well past 500 episodes. Um, one, uh, I don't have any one particular type of guest, but I'm very, I very much enjoy people who have the academic background. They've gone through the typically Western academic college, PhD, doctorate, whatever, and then um, somewhere in their life journey, they've learned to look behind the curtain, so to speak, to look beyond mm-hmm. the the instruction and and you're one of those because um you have a phd and and uh i mentioned the universities and whatnot that that you've been involved with what would you say to a stringent academic mind if if they're looking strictly uh perhaps in the material world or they have a really rigid mental construct of what valid versus invalid data is what would you say to that that's a good question and uh, i i often find myself discussing that with uh with people and uh i'm amazed at uh, even people in my family who know me and trust that I'm not making things up or really good friends that I have. Uh, I'm thinking of one or two right now who admire me, respect me, but I cannot get them open. I cannot open their mind. For example, I don't understand why anybody would resist being told or being interested in evidence for life after death. Uh, I know one person, uh, for example, who recently lost her husband, who, uh, whom she adored and who adored her. And uh, this is a fairly close person uh, to me in my life. And I said, you know, I've been looking at this stuff for a long time, and I don't think that so-and-so, I don't want to mention names, is gone at all. I think he, he's somewhere out there uh, because there's so much evidence. There's tons of evidence that points toward and suggests the reality of life after death. And I said, I can help you out. You could even read my book, my book that I wrote on the subject, for starters. Uh, and, but absolutely unbudging, not by no means an unintelligent person or a bad person or an emotionally stunted person. But it's a, it's a mystery to me how uh, this person could not uh, be open to say, all right, Mike, you know, convince me, you know. Uh, unlike my brother, by the way, who when he was dying uh, of, of uh, cancer, uh, I gave him my one book that I wrote on, on survival, and he scarfed it up, uh, and, uh, and it helped him. Uh, his mind was open. Uh, and so I, as a, you, the point you've just raised, question, is a very important one, and I don't know the answer to it. Uh, all I do is smile and say, well, maybe the time will come when you'll be more receptive. Uh, you right. can't hit somebody over the head. Uh, so well, you can. Not but... <laughs> <laughs> right. Right, well, exactly. that, 
We're getting towards the end of the show. I want to make sure we turn our focus on to you. So tell us about your books and tell us about any other things that you would like to share with the audience, your web pages, et cetera. Can you do that well, now, please? Yeah, I sure. I uh, the, the the book we're talking about. I, I I was looking at it closely today and taking notes on it, and uh, I, I think it has something to say to people. And uh, another book that I wrote recently that uh, perhaps uh, readers might be interested in if they're interested in this program, and that is called uh, the, uh, this book is called Smile of the Universe. Miracles in an Age of Disbelief. Believe me, I know about the disbelief, and I realize that writing a book on miracles uh, and blatantly using that word in a you know, psychic or spiritual sense could be risky. I, I tried to get that uh, book reviewed. I have a lot of Catholic saints uh, and their miracles in a, in a Catholic uh, uh, publication, and the response was so devious. The guy said... We have to get in touch with a uh, some uh, higher-up person in the church <laughs> hierarchy before we could get permission, and then he never replied to me. So I was clear that this was a kind of a progressive uh, Catholic publication, uh, and the idea of miracles was a little too risky for him to suggest. And this is this was a Catholic magazine, not a, a Catholic Christian. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm, uh, th- th- that that that's a book that I think uh, readers uh, might uh, enjoy uh, because I cover uh, a whole range of, uh, of extraordinary uh, uh, phenomena, and I follow my rule: there has to be solid evidence, and uh, I'm, I'm not interested in speculating on possibilities, but I want facts that uh, point in that direction. So um, and I, now I'm, I'm writing a book, uh, trying to put together a book on my art. If you're inviting me to talk about that. And I'm calling it Painting the Paranormal because uh, many of the scenes, uh, I've been painting on and off all my life, but I've never pursued it as a profession. Now and then I sell a painting. Uh, people like it and I sell it cheaply because they're mostly friends but I'm going to come out with a book with that title fairly soon and uh, so it's another side of myself that I would like to uh, explore and share with people and in it the book I try to uh, inspire people to learn how to take chances with their own creativity so many people talking about wanting to do this, wanting to paint or write. And and I say, give it a shot without fear. Uh, and uh, because you can open up a vein in yourself of creativity and, you know, benefit wonderfully from that. Uh, that's about all I have to say about myself. I, I've, I've written, you know, as I say, a number of books. Uh, I'm not going to rattle off all of them. Uh, but... Um, and um, I'm, and I will say this uh, as a concluding remark, just coming from me. Our discussion this evening of latent creative potentials is at this point of history, with climate catastrophe encroaching upon us, and the greatest risk since 1947 of a growing risk of nuclear war at this point in our history, in this age of Kali, you know, the age of conflicts, check it out on, uh, on, 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 on not on YouTube, uh, uh, Google the question, what wars are going on right now? It, it's staggering, the number of wars uh, and many wars, all different kinds of violence pervading the planet. We need to awaken to our inner creative potential. And uh, it, because we're at a point in, in our history as a species where both nature is running amok due to our intrusion 
burning of fossil fuels. We all know about that now. And for some reason, all over the planet, it's indescribable conflict all over the place. It's shocking if you do a little research on this. It doesn't take a lot of research. And uh, I won't say anything about America. We're all Americans right here. We know what's going on. So uh, we need to awaken our awareness of our creative potential as a species right now. That's my belief. Well, very nice. An hour can go by pretty fast. I want to thank you, Michael, for being our guest tonight. I've really enjoyed this episode. Well, thank you very much, uh, Les. I, I enjoyed talking with you very much. We've been talking with Michael Grosso, and the topic tonight has been the name of his latest book, Yoga of Sound. He also lists two web pages in his bio, consciousnessunbound.blogspot.com and paintingtheparanormal.com. What a fun episode. I like stirring up the idea of what, quote, normal, unquote, is, because uh, I think we've been kind of stuck in a normal, in a a stasis, in a static, uh, um, plain vanilla, perhaps, uh, relationship with our environment, with our potential, um, kind of a black and white mindset about, you know, uh, get an education, get a job, retire, and and w- to stop and and like this episode has done, stretch our idea of who we are and what is our relationship with our pot- potential. You know when um, we've been talking about sound tonight, and it reminded me of another um, book. It's called Source. Field Investigation, and it's by David Wilcox. And in that book, uh, uh, English explorer, I hope I get this right, um, went to like a third world country, and he observed them lifting stones with sound. They would form like an arc, perhaps a a half circle, a particular distance away from the stone, and they all had musical instruments or sound-generating instruments of some sort or or another, and he watched as they would create this collective sound, and they would raise the stone off the ground and place it um, up high on a hillside or whatever. So, so that came to mind. That might be interesting. But, you know, I'm going to I'm going to delve into a, another topic here. And that that topic is ecstatic dance. And what do I mean by ecstatic dance? Ecstatic dance, in my in the context that I'm referring it to, is is when you dance without um, concern. It it it's um, I don't know if you call it flailing because it it's like your body knows how it wants to move and it might not move in a logical, rational manner. Remember, we've talked about getting out of our minds, getting out of our linear minds. And a static dance is a way for you to, with your body, have a nonlinear experience with music. Now, why would I bring this up at the end of the show? Well, I've been very fortunate here in Denver. There's a group called Rhythm Sanctuary, and they've been holding ecstatic dance for 15 years every Thursday night. And I've been going for probably uh, most of those years. And so so you live in Timbuktu and, and you Google online and well here's an ecstatic dance and it's 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 close by and I'm gonna go by and participate in the static dance. 
you're not going to, um, I shouldn't say you're not, it's unlikely that you'll have the experience that I'm talking about. And I'll give you an example as to why. There's, um, at Rhythm Sanctuary, every every week they have a new, uh, not a new one, every week they have a different disc jockey. And some disc jockeys get it, and some don't. And the ones that get it, in and of themselves, in other words, the the sound jockeys that have been working with this group for a long time can play at other venues. And I've gone and and gone to an ecstatic dance at another venue, and it's been completely, <laughs> I don't want to say lame, but nowhere near as intense. At Rhythm Sanctuary, there's a disc jockey called Sound Dragon. No, uh, sorry, Sun Dragon. And he he gets it. And and let me explain to you the difference. It it goes on for about two hours. Um, some of the rules are no talking. Everybody's kind of in their own world, and the the music progresses. And and I'm talking to disc jockeys now, or sound jockeys, whatever you want to call them. There's a thing about tempo where you incrementally take the tempo up higher and higher and higher. And, and, and so you're literally shifting the energy of the group into higher and higher realms of energy, so to speak. And I can tell in a heartbeat, I don't even have to attend the ecstatic dance. I can just sit outside in the foyer and tell whether they've, they've hit the mark or not. And I can tell that when everybody's dripping in sweat and they're they're not talking, they're drinking because they're so wiped out because they've exerted so much energy versus a, a, a sound jockey that might play glorified elevator music and people are walking out and going, well, you know, you want to go have some coffee or and they're chatting and they're not sweating at all. Ecstatic dance. There's a thing that happens with that. The uh, if you were to look at your persona, your 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 body and the energy that rides on that, as you walk, uh, as you meet people, some people have a really heavy energy. Uh, they're kind of dense and and um, their energy is is relatively low. But the reason I bring up a static dance is when Sun Dragon plays and and the dancers that have danced there for over a decade, they know what's about to happen. And other venues can't necessarily provide that. It's really a unique thing. I uh, And I would put it... Um, at a very high caliber ecstatic dance, perhaps I'd put it up against anything else in the country. But when we get that energy going so fast and so intense, you can feel people shedding the density of their energy within their persona. Does that make sense? It's like, um, uh, almost every week, well, I'm sure every week, there's new people that have never done it before. And when they come in, they have no idea what's about to happen. They come in and they're not sure of themselves and they're they're kind of reserved. And here's, you know, 100, 150 people who's dancing, jumping up and down, jumping up and down in an ecstatic way at higher and higher tempos. And at, at the apex of it, there's so much energy going on that people shed, that, that newbie that just walked in 
walks out with a completely different disposition. It's almost like the dance. The sound in the dance is like this uh, cultural washing machine, so to speak. It's a very powerful thing. It's probably as close as I get to a religious experience because we gather with an intent and then we, we, we create this field of energy, this standing wave of energy. And um, at the apex, there is so much energy going on. People are dancing so hard. They're sweating so hard. And everybody has such a wonderful time with it. Yeah, I, I was kind of wondering if I should mention this or not. But for me, it's it's been such a powerful element in my life. And yet, I, I don't expect it. Uh, that people will be able to find this in their neighborhood. But what the hell? If people don't even know it exists, or if if there's a disc jockey, I know that's an antiquated term, or a sound jockey, whatever, um, you, you, the disc jockey, can understand how tempo can bring the entire group to higher and higher levels of energy. And the higher the level of the energy, the more opportunity to shed that lethargic energy within our persona. I went out on a limb. I decided to share that. Um, so be it. Um, I love, I absolutely love, it's one of my most favorite things on the planet. I love going to a Sun Dragon ecstatic dance at Rhythm Sanctuary. So anywho, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. I mean, we as human beings on planet Earth, I think it's time for us to kind of show up, kind of look past the what was, quote, normal, the 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 baseline of, of who we think we are and and for us to raise the bar for you individually, for me individually, when will it be time for us to engage the field of potential and manifest miracles of our own? If we don't think about it, if we don't have an intent about it, it's not very likely to happen. Thanks for listening tonight. Always a pleasure. Until next time. This has been a New Human Living Radio broadcast. To bring your soul's inspiration into effect and live your life wide open. Check out our host, Les Jensen's book, Citizen King, The New Age of Power, at newhumanliving.com. Thanks for listening.